uh, last in a series of four day-longs on the four foundations of mindfulness, just kind of like on the airplanes where they do a destination check. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. If you want to go to any of the other foundations, go somewhere else. Anyway, welcome, welcome. My name is Sally Armstrong. I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, so teach here regularly, um, sometimes day-longs in classes, but more often up in the retreat center uh, where I uh, usually teach the long retreats and uh, some of the retreats for senior students because I love um, introducing people to the depth and the breadth of the Buddha's teaching to really make that available and accessible. Um, And we're just fortunate that in this day and age, there is that possibility that there are great texts that are being written and resources for us and opportunities to study and practice. So over the years, I've been very involved in developing programs that do that kind of study, uh, whether they're day-long series like this one on the foundations, um, other offerings that are more extended or in-depth for senior students and help to start a program called the Dedicated Practitioners Program for our senior students, a, a two-year program of retreats that really dive into the teachings in a very experiential way. So it's really been my love and passion uh, to teach in this way. And I love teaching, um, as I said, introducing people to these kind of texts and teachings and practices and in a very interactive way. So this is not going to be a day of silence. Um, I am going to be talking quite a lot because if you've even glanced over the uh, material that's been handed out, there's a lot in just this one foundation and to cover it all is an impossible task in just one day. We could take this one foundation and, and be here for weeks, if not months, um, going over all the details of it. So it really will be just a, a broad overview. So I will be talking quite a bit. If you find you're getting kind of full, you can tune me out. It's totally understandable. All of this material is available in different forms in other places and other resources, so I'll point you to those at the end. No one can take this all in. You know, I know that it's a lot in a day to to investigate a, a topic like this. So I really hope to just touch the highlights and, and uh, um, the, the, the sort of direction or the, the um, important core of this foundation and set of practices, and then you can take that um, in your own practice and study as you leave here. So there will be quite a bit of talking. We'll certainly have some meditation, guided meditations on the different themes. We'll do some walking meditation. And I'm also very happy to say there'll be interviews offered. And Andrew Chaikin, a dear friend and colleague, a senior student in our tradition, has volunteered to come today. And I'm going to have to say it, Andrew, it's his birthday today. So he is choosing to do this on his birthday, offer you guys interviews. So it's a real gesture of dana and service. And uh, he did this for me on the last day long and saw tons of people. And I think it was really helpful. So when we start our first walking period, which will be around 11, um, approximately, Andrew will be available. And I'll leave you to do the details, but in one of the offices over there, 
Um, and you can sign up, and whether you want to talk about, you know, literally the material of the day or your own practice, but they are practice interviews. That's the important thing to remember. They're not to say happy birthday as much as that might be fun, or to check out Andrew and, you know, have an interesting conversation. Maybe at the end of the day, though, he'll be exhausted by then. So, um, But it really is an opportunity, which is pretty rare, to talk to someone about your practice and get some guidance, uh, and as I say, particularly around the four foundations. So, Andrew, there was a mic... Oh, you got the microphone, if you just say a few words about you and how that all works, the whole process. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for being here today. I'm honored to be with you, spend my birthday with you. Uh, I have been practicing the Theravada Vipassana path uh, for about 15 years, mostly here, uh, some in Thailand and elsewhere. And um, I teach uh, a weekly sitting group in San Francisco. I teach meditation in the SF County Jail, working with incarcerated men. Um, work with teens and kids in nature, both here and elsewhere. And uh, so really, if you have anything that you want to discuss about your practice, either about the Fourth Foundation, anything around this class series, or anything in your practice at all, I'd be honored to spend 15 minutes with you. Um, there are 15-minute slots. We have, I, I believe, about 17 or 18 slots. So um, if, if it is desirable to you, uh, there should be room for many of you. So I'm honored to be here. Enjoy your day. How? Thank you. Sorry. It's a little early in the morning. Uh, um, my little interview room, if you go out into the meadow there, it's on the left at the end of the horseshoe. And there will be a little statue of an angel. And there will be a clipboard next to the angel. And put your name on the clipboard near the angel. So uh, slots go from 11 to lunchtime and then after lunchtime and so on. Does that? Yeah, and uh, you know, you might sign up for a time. It's going to be approximate because these yeah. days just flow but you kind of get a sense of what order you might be in, and so you have to be a little flexible about this. But yeah, it's great to have Andrew offering this, so hope you can make that make use of that. I think I just saw a clipboard on the table back there, so I think people are, can sign up right there. Okay. Then the clipboard is on the table in the back right there. The one that says for interviews? Yes. Oh. Okay. But and it will get moved eventually to over there because Andrew needs to be able to see it near his interview room. So, Thank you. He'll probably grab it before anyone else does at 11 o'clock, which will be when we first take a break. Okay, so that's kind of the logistics of the day. You know, they said we'll do some, I'll be talking a lot. We'll do some guided meditations. We'll have some walking meditations. There'll be bells to ring to tell you, um, you know, to know when, when to come back from the walking. We'll explain all that as we go on. So, as I said, this is the last of a series on the four foundations. We've taken a, a four months about, I think, to do it. I did the first foundation. I don't know when that was back in September, and then Donald Rothberg did uh, the, the intermediate two, second and third, and I'm back for the fourth. And I actually like doing it this way if I'm sharing it with a teacher, because I love teaching the first foundation, which is on the body, but the fourth foundation is my favorite. But, you know, it's like kids. If you have to have, no, I don't choose. No, I do. Um, because it's so rich, it's so powerful. So I often give Dharma talks at retreats just on this foundation. So again, that resource is available. Um, 
So I want to just find out who's here. How many people have done all four, have come for the... Oh, that's great. There's quite a few of you. And did you bring your book, your text? You didn't? No. Some did, some didn't. Anyway, so if you didn't, then you need, probably want the text of the day. So how many people are just coming for this one fourth foundation? Okay, so... And then there's some who I presume are somewhere in between. So this will be standalone. You don't need to have been to the other three, but I will be referring to them. And one of the handouts that's up there that's optional, um, I'll get to that as we go through it, is really uh, relates a lot to the other three foundations. Um, and how many of you have been on retreat before, a residential retreat? Quite a lot. That's great. How many are fairly new to meditation, haven't had much instruction? Any one or so. So this is, you know, it's not a beginning meditation class, but uh, we will be doing some guided meditation. So I've hopefully if so, everyone will find something for every, everyone will find something for themselves, hopefully. And for those of you that have done the other um, foundations, you know that we gave homework at the end of them. So I know that Donald offered you some homework at the end of the third foundation that he taught. And I did review it yesterday. I meant to print it out, and I didn't do it. So I don't have the questions in mind. Anyone brave enough to (laughs) give a report on your practice with the third foundation following Donald's uh, day long a few weeks ago? Yes, and where did uh, Juliet the microphone? We're just going to use the microphone at make, uh, right by the red aisle. Put your hand up again. Yeah, I just took on one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot. That's yeah. I was. Yeah, there were a lot. Yeah. So I uh, took on um, uh, the t- what was uh, name the top ten, um, uh, naming the um, uh, content the the thoughts, the types of thought, t- the, the top, top ten types types t- of thoughts that you yeah. have. Yes. And um, uh, so I had a list. Uh, it was about five mm-hmm. that came up, mm-hmm. and the top one was. Um, um, planning. Mm-hmm. I I was shocked at how much I planned. Yeah, yeah. But it was so helpful. Uh huh. It was so helpful to name, and I I uh, and it helped me so much to get back to my breath. Yes, it great. was. It was. Uh, uh, and one of the things I also do is I have a song going in my head so much of the time. Right. And when and when I name when I name song. I was able to get back to my breath, and it stopped the song. Interesting. It, yeah. And I've never been able to stop, stop the songs before. Interesting. And it stopped the song and be able to get back to the breath. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very helpful to just name it. Yes. And then I wrote them down. <laughs> Great. So it was very helpful. And what's your name? Pam. Pam. So you really hit on one of the things that I'll be talking about a lot today, the power of naming. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to be mindful of something, have a general awareness of it, the naming, the clear knowing of it, whether you use a mental label or not, but the noticing, the clear recognition of something. And 
you know, the naming is so important, really shifts our relationship to we're not as lost, we're not as confused, and we can have a wiser response to that experience. So this is, you've really touched on a big theme of what we'll be looking at today, this clarity that comes in when we go beyond just mindfulness to really recognizing what's happening and having some understanding of that. So there's also a relationship between what you described in this foundation we'll be doing today. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I didn't you. get so lost in the yeah. whatever the thought was. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you also hit, too, that, you know, how many people would put planning at the top of their list, right? And then music somewhere there. You know, it's just so common for us. Our mind does what it's been habituated to do. And, you know, we, and when we feed it, we feed that kind of thinking. So it's going to happen. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Willing to report. One behind. Yes, thank you. And say your name. Uh, I'm Chuck. Uh-huh. And, uh, yep, yep, we can okay. hear you. Uh, this is a little off topic because I missed the third session because I was ill. But the second session, Donald talked about the concept of shooting the second arrow. Mm. And mm-hmm. that has been one of the most useful teachings mm. I've received in 50 years of <laughs> studying Buddhism. Um, and I find it applies to so many situations in my life. It's pouring rain outside, and, and my wife asks, will you walk the dog? And I say, oh, God, i got to walk the damn... Oh, shit, I just shot the second <laughs> arrow. <laughs> Washing the dishes all through life. It's, yeah. it's just been an incredibly powerful teaching, and I'm just really grateful for that. Great, thank you. So he's referring to a teaching we call the second arrow or second dart. The first one is whatever the impact of dukkha or suffering is. You know, you hammering in and you, you, you hit your nail, you hit your thumb with the hammer. The first arrow is the pain of that. The second arrow is, oh, I'm so stupid. Why didn't I do that? Why wasn't I paying attention? You know, whose stupid hammer is this? And who put that nail there? You know, whatever, you know, sort of the blaming, the complaining, etc. And for many of us, there is much more suffering in that second arrow than the first. You know, we, we, we can have some degree of acceptance or, you know, whatever level of immediate suffering, direct suffering, dukkha dukkha, we call it in our lives, um, you know, different levels of that and some degree of equanimity perhaps, but so many of us spend so much time spinning around in the second arrow. And again, the clarity of recognizing when we're doing it, we then have a choice. Do I keep going, oh, I'm stupid, oh, I'm stupid, or do we say, oh, this is just what happened, let me take care of it, let me walk the dog, let me go put some ice on my thumb. Or, you know, we, we actually respond wisely instead of getting caught in that spinning cycle. So it's amazing. You know, I don't, I don't, know, don't know what your practice is, but we can, often we hear something and we say, dang, why didn't they tell me that before? That's the best teaching I've ever heard. And if only they'd said that 20 years ago, I would have been much further along in my practice. And often you might find, we had said it before. But we just somehow weren't ready to hear it. It didn't sink in. It wasn't said in a way we could hear it. So this is a very common experience with these teachings. And part of it is they make such good sense. You know, that's why I presume you're here, because these teachings speak to you. But we can only take in some, you know, it all makes good sense. We can only take in so much at a time. And so it's a very evolutionary process 
And it's why we call it practice, because we're always learning, we're always growing, and new things are coming up that are really meaningful for us and can really reduce our suffering. So thank you for sharing that. That was great. Okay. So, um, again, I want to confirm that you either have a copy of your book or you have the handout that's um, called Fourth Foundation, Dhammas, the Translation, and then this copy of the grid is helpful. The one that looks kind of like columns, um, that covers all four foundations, and it's not so necessary for today because it's duplicated here, but we had some spare, so I just put it out. But um, the other two, I think, will be helpful because this one especially, you will get overwhelmed and confused by this, I have no doubt. Um, I made a calculation somewhere, I was going to say it later on, but I'll do it here. There's 27 different focuses for practice. Each one has two or three or four or maybe more uh, ways of practicing with it. I'm not good at math, but you add, you know, multiply that out and you've got 40, 50, 60, 70 or so different practices that you could do as a result of this uh, teaching. And many of you might know that Joseph Goldstein, my dear friend and teacher, um, did a series of talks at our sister center, the Forest Refuge, on the foundations. And I think he did 60 or 70 talks. And he's now made them into a book, but they're available as a CD. And I think there's something like 30 hours just on this foundation. So, you know, there's a lot here is basically what I'm saying. So just warning you a little and... Uh, <laughs> As I said, if you feel you're getting full, just let the words roll by. There's, there's a few things I'm going to point to as helpful to remember. Everything else can just kind of go. So let's dive in. Um, if you look at your grid, you don't have to, but just to see, as I said, all of the different things that are pointed to in this foundation, um, and it's the most complex. Uh, actually, it's interesting. I did the first and the third, which are really both really long. If you were here for the second and the third foundations, they're actually quite short. You know, there are a few paragraphs, um, but they're powerful practices and they, they point to um, a real depth of insight. But these, the first and the fourth, and particularly this one, are really long. There's a lot in there. And I kind of think of it as the Buddhist greatest hits. He said, you know, what do people need to know to come to awakening? What do they need? And this is the list that he thought was relevant. Just truth in advertising, um, Bhikkhu Analeo, who wrote the text, uh, not the text, he wrote a text on Satipatthana. And this, I consider it the best Dharma book I've read in 10 years. He's... I've actually supported him teaching this retre a retreat on this. I've sat at the retreat with him. I've supported him teaching it. So I've gotten to know him quite well. He's an amazing scholar. He's German. He's actually coming here next year to teach on it. There's been a lottery at the moment, if you're interested. Um, so he wrote this great work, just really comprehensive on Satipatthana. But then he got interested in it. So he kept diving further. And he, his specialty... and I. I think he could be considered the foremost comparative. Now, what's it called? Comparative? Um, what he's doing is investigating the different strains of Buddhism to see what's um, coherent among them, what's, what's consensual among them. And he actually has changed his understanding of the fourth foundation to just include the hindrances, 
the awakening and th and the aggregates and the awakening factors. Um, but that's another topic to go into that. I still think this is a brilliant list, um, and it is the you know the it's from the Pali Canon, it's from the Satipatthana Sutta found in the Majjhima and the Digha Nikaya. In the Majjhima, it's number 10. And it's really where our practice comes from. The practice that we teach here at Spirit Rock comes from the Satipatthana Sutta. Many other practices we teach, and of course, you know, different ways of looking at it, but that practice really uh, is the basis, the foundation of mindfulness. It's Satipatthana is a Pali word, and there's um, different ideas of how to translate it because, again, I'm not a Pali scholar, but it depends where you break the word, whether it's Satipatthana or sat Ipatana, I'm you know I'm not sure, but it, people so people have different understandings about it. But it 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 has sati definitely means mindfulness, and patana is path or way or placing near, or directing. So foundations of mindfulness, frames of reference, um, the arousing of mindfulness. These could all be translations of sati patana, but the main thing is it describes mindfulness practice in great depth and detail. And this is uh, what we will be looking at today. And as I said, the fourth foundation really en en encompasses all of the other three. They can all be found here. Um, and that's why it's so complex. So if, if you have this sheet, or um, we're here at the other day longs, just to go over what this um, sutta covers, so you have a sense the other foundations, the first one is the body, and it's where we begin because it's so accessible. You're here because you have a body, and it starts with the body and breathing. So if you're here, you're alive, you have a body, and you're breathing. So that's where the Buddha says to start our meditation practice. It's where pretty much every practice or retreat day long you've ever done will start with that. So that's the first foundation. Then it, it certainly gets more complex than that. It includes all of the postures, all of our activities, the elements, which is really just sensing the kind of um, well, elemental nature of the body, but it also includes death contemplations, which we don't often teach, so really can get quite deep. Anatomical parts of the body, um, really looking in a very detailed way at the composite nature of the body. Then the second foundation, as this gentleman referred to, is Vedana, or feeling tone, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, that ev it said that every sensory experience has, even uh, mental ones, have some valence of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And how we relate to that, the pleasant ones, what do we do? Glom onto them, we want them, we hold on. The unpleasant ones, we push them away. And the neutral ones, we space out around. So even though it's a very simple, um, direct thing, it, it actually leads to the ways we suffer in the world through craving and clinging. Then the third foundation um, is to do with the mind, citta, citta nupasana. Uh, the states of mind, again, from Vedna, looking at the mind that gets moved into craving, to clinging, to aversion, to lust, um, to confusion, and then um, meditative states of mind, whether the mind is concentrated or not. So it's really to do with the mind. So they're the first three foundations that are listed here on, on that chart. 
the f- and it said that you can practice any one of these foundations. It just take one, and that would be enough to come to awakening. That each one has a depth in it and really encapsulates all the other ones if you if you take them to their full extent. But today we're focusing on the fourth foundation, which is called Dhamma Nupassana, mindfulness of dhammas. I don't know, just from my quick going through, and those of you that have been to all four, you might notice they're getting progressively more subtle. Starts with the body. It's very distinct and available sense of, of physicality. And then it moves to Vedana, which is, is um, somewhat subtle. But once you start paying attention to it, you see how common it is and how instantly we re- react with liking and not liking to things or spacing out if there's nothing strong. Um, then the mind, you know, it, it, some practices actually start with awareness of mind. But for most people, that's really difficult because our minds are so restless and agitated, so full of thinking and planning, that it's hard to stabilize around that. But once you ground in the body and get some sense of awareness, then it is possible to be aware of your thoughts and your m- emotions in a very direct way, but still a more subtle and difficult practice. The fourth foundation is the most, you could say difficult, certainly the most complex. So uh, logical order in this. And they're, as I said, interwoven. There's a lot of overlap between the third and fourth foundation. As I said, the third foundation we're asked to be aware of what is, what's the content of your mind? Is your mind happy or sad, greedy or aversive, um, deluded or clear? Uh, is, uh, is the mind concentrated or in states of meditative bliss or not? Is it expanded or contracted? So you ask to recognize that. And as someone said, the naming of that is so helpful. But in the fourth foundation, The difference is, and this is what we'll be repeating over and over again, we're asked to be aware of the context within which that experience is happening. And this is the big difference. Uh, And, you know, I don't want to make that too black and white because in the other foundations you're also, you know, invited to do this, but here this is clearly what is being pointed to over and over again. We're asked to look at not just what is happening, but why. And many of you may have practiced meditation where you've asked that question and your teacher would have said, don't ask why, just be aware of it, just name it, just know it. And there's a real clarity or benefit to that, especially as we begin practice, because it can get very confusing. Why is this happening? And, you know, we do that thing of, oh, I was thinking of this, and then I was thinking of that, you know, and trail it back until you get kind of lost, but you can track. A lot of the time that isn't helpful, because we're just ruminating. But the Buddha is asking us to bring this clarity of precision to this recognition in order to achieve a particular goal, which is to understand why is there suffering and how can there be freedom. Not, it's, so it's not a psychological figuring out, it's not a therapeutic figuring out. It really answers that, th- it's directed to answering that question, and it's basically developing wisdom. This is what this, this foundation is all about, developing wisdom. 
I have a teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, who's got a whole book called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And his main thrust is that just mindfulness isn't enough. And there's a whole mindfulness movement. I'm sure many of you may be here because of that. We call it the secular mindfulness movement or practical mindfulness, you know, mindfulness in yoga and mindfulness in schools and mindfulness in hospitals. And it's wonderful that this is happening. But people are often teaching just bare mindfulness, just the simple knowing of what's happening. And as I said, that is very valuable. That's the core of this practice. But the Buddha went further. And this is his description of what's really needed if we are to practice what's called samasati, right or wise or whole, complete mindfulness. We need to bring this wisdom in where we start to understand how everything we experience is conditioned, a result of prior conditions, and that if we can see that clearly with the mindfulness in the moment, we can make a wiser choice, just as this gentleman was saying about the second arrow. Instead of kicking the dog because he has to take the dog for a walk in the rain, it's like, oh, no, you know, here I am. Let's enjoy this or be with this or just do it without complaining. So, and can go, obviously, deeper than that. So mindfulness alone is not enough to lead to liberation. It has to be, also especially bare mindfulness, just just the direct knowing in the moment. It has to be samasati, wise mindfulness, that brings in this wisdom so we learn for ourselves what are the habits, the patterns, the activities that increase our suffering and the suffering of others, and what are the habits, the patterns, the activities that decrease suffering, that lead to more freedom and wisdom. And this is what we'll be focusing on today. And, you know, it's one thing to say, well, just don't do the things that cause suffering and do the things that cause happiness. That's pretty simple. We could all go home. But what the Buddha does again and again, and if you know his teachings, he makes lists. He divides things up so that we can get a handle on them. Because even though there is a simplicity to this mind-body, you know, it's, we're all have, you know, there's a, there's a universal nature to it, you know, it's pretty much the same, even though it manifests a little differently. It can be incredibly complex in here, right? We can get very confused and lost and all of the different patterns that can happen. So the Buddhist strategy was that, is what I call deconstructing experience. And again, you'll see this over and over again, where he will take an experience and say, it's not a solid thing. It's made up of this, 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 and this. And if you separate them and name them, they don't have the same power to confuse us as they do when they're solid. Because like, oh, it's this happening and this interacting with that. Oh, it's just a sight or a sound or a pressure in my chest or a vibration. That I can know, and as I know that, I get closer to it, and I'm not so lost in it, identified with it, reactive to it. So this deconstruction is a, a key point, and so that's why there are all these lists. And always there's the invitation to see ha- the, you know, the experience as it's happening, how we're relating to it, and what would it be like to have more freedom here and now, not, you know, when I reach the fourth stage of enlightenment or even the first stage, you know, whatever your goal is or your imagination might be. 
not that, but just here and now, this is a direct teaching that we can put into practice. The challenge is it's very complicated, as I've said. So we don't usually teach the fourth foundation, even on retreats, really, because it's so complex. The best way to work with it is to do just what you're doing, is to come and get some teachings on it and kind of you steep in it. And it becomes, as Tanisaro Bhikkhu calls, a frame of reference that you can use as a skillful means when appropriate. One of the challenges, excuse me, of a day today is, you know, I can't sit here and say, now we'll practice the fourth foundation because it's like, oh my God, what do I do? There's, you know, a hundred different things I could do. And as I do guided meditations, I'll just be taking very small parts. But if you have the framework, then again, you can have a skillful response and it, it can be related to anything you experience. There is no experience even unconditioned experience. There's no, certainly no conditioned experience and not even an unconditioned experience that cannot be known through this framework of the fourth foundation. So that's what I mean by it being very complete. There are some teachers who, when they teach, they basically, especially on long retreats, Mahasi Saida was like, he gave all the instructions. He would just sit down and talk. I don't know how long it took him. I never sat. He's dead, been dead many years now. But I don't know how long it would take, but he talked for as long as it took, two or three hours. And then he'd say, okay, now do your retreat. We realized that that's perhaps not so helpful. So we kind of, if you've been on retreat, you know, we have this progression. We do, we take those instructions and we break them down. And the artificially, artificiality of that is, of course, that everything is happening. You know, it's not like today we're doing the body and the breath and you're not having any hindrances or you're not thinking. You know, so it's, it's artificial to do it that way, but it kind of just has a progression that we can take in. And so it's a bit like this. It's like, well, let's break this down. But as you um, practice more in this way, have this as a background, again, it's like your tool belt, your meditation tool belt. And you'll know what's a wise response. What's the tool, what's the most skillful tool, the wisest response to this particular situation? And not just in your meditation, but in your daily life as well. So has anyone actually practiced with the fourth foundation, sort of taken it up on retreat or in their life and said, I'm going to bring some clarity to this. Thank you. Would you care to speak about what that was? Was that helpful? You can just be brief. Was it helpful? Was it, how did you, uh, here on the left, Juliet, was it, how did you do it? I was at the retreat with you and Analio. Speak it a little closer to the microphone. I was at the retreat with you and Joseph and Analio. So, um, Oh, right. Well, he teaches you do it every sitting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the main benefit that I found to my practice was that just what you just said, that it gives you a framework, it gives you an understanding as things happen, which they happen very quickly in the mind, then... Um, it's possible to bring some organization to that. Yeah. And the one teaching that is very helpful, I find, is that uh, what the lady mentioned before is perception. Mm. Clearly knowing, right, is a very uh, useful thing and is helpful in, in organizing all these lists, you know, as something comes up in the, you know, oh, that's pleasant. 
oh, that's form. Yes. Oh, that's. And yes. so it's, you know, to having this framework, I'm very grateful to the Buddha and to Analeo for. Oh, thank you. You know, having a way to organize all yeah. this. All this. Thank yeah, you. yeah, good. So you, you reminded me of something. I've done the retreat twice. I should have mentioned it, that um, the way Venerable Analeo teaches this, um, you know, he does build it up, but by the end, you were doing all fo- four foundations every sitting. But he kind of does this very quick. <laughs> at the end, you go, uh, oh, what was it? You know, oh, now I forget it. But he will, he will just say, zip, you know, through the body. Oh, that's the first foundation. Body, zip, you know, breath, zip, dying, in breath, out breath, dead. You know, <laughs> very, very quick. Um, and so it's a little complex, but it certainly gives you kind of this handle on how to actually incorporate this in a very real way, very alive way. So it's great. Um, but it's not, it's not something that you, you really do sort of set out to do. You have it as a framework, and then it's available in response to your practice and your life as, as things come up for you. So, you know, even after today, it's not like you're going to go home and say, now I'm going to practice the fourth foundation. You might take one of these lists, perhaps, and, 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 and incorporate that. But it is such a big picture that... Patra Manalayo, who's got the quick way of doing it, uh, most of us just kind of use it as appropriate. So let's let's start with, um, and if, yeah, and if anything today seems too complicated, you are welcome just to let it go. It's something that maybe one or two things will speak to you. Um, main thing I want to do is give the big picture overview and some of the essential points, and you know it'll flow for you as it does. So let's start with uh, what we're actually looking at. This is Dhamma Nupassana, means uh, mindfulness of Dhammas. Uh, in Pali, the word is Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A. In Sanskrit, it has an R in it, so it's usually, I might detect my accent, I have trouble with R's, so I have to say Dharma. Because the, the way I normally say it, you'd say Dhamma, Dhamma, Dharma, with an R. Um, that's the Sanskrit, but Pali we use here is Dhamma. What does that word mean? Anyone? You can just yell it out. We don't need to use the microphone. What duty. is duty? Duty. Yes, duty is one translation of dhamma. Teaching. teaching the teachings, particularly of the Buddha. That's a big one. Laws. Laws. So the way things are. Yes. So these are all. The, these are the sort of the highlights of dhamma. There is one more meaning though that people often don't know about. Hmm? Path. Path. Uh, yes, that would be aligned with teachings, but yes, you could say the path of, of practice. Yeah, it's all a dhamma. Mm-hmm. The Tibetan teachings, I've, I've been taught that it's like the ultimate goal. The ultimate, the ultimate goal. goal. Being, uh, yes, so dhamma, as far as I understand, it's, n- it's not the goal, it's the teachings or the truth that point to the ultimate goal, which is emptiness nibbana. That's, that's how I would frame that. But it's certainly essential, very linked. Phenomena. Phenomena. That's the one that people don't often know. There's another meaning, and I don't know why they do it, but this is a dhamma. You know, everything is a dhamma, is a thing. And you usually do a dhamma with a lowercase d. Um, is a, you know, you're a dhamma, I'm a dhamma. Everything is a dhamma also. So it means the stuff of the world too. So it's, th- it means a lot, this word. Um, and so because of that, there's been a lot of d- 
different interpretations of what this foundation is pointing to. My husband, Guy Armstrong, who's a teacher, also told me that at one three-month course over at IMS, the teachers often have Dhamma discussions, so we call them Dhamma discussions, talking about the Dhamma, about what this word means in this context. And he said after about two hours, they could come to some kind of consensus on what it means. So, you know, we don't have to land on anything. It means all of that. Um, and uh, Taranea, another teacher, she has a good way of putting it, that this foundation is seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So it's seeing the truth in everything, in phenomena, seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. Um, so I like that translation of it. And what we are asked to do is, uh, on this chart, we are asked to contemplate, and the, the language is, actually I've got different translations. Some people put mind objects, Analeo doesn't. Uh, we're asked to contemplate in relationship to the five hindrances, which many of you probably know. Again, on any retreat, we will probably talk about the hindrances, these challenges, particularly to our meditation practice, but of course we can have them in any aspect of experience. The five aggregates, a little bit more of a challenging teaching. Um, we we'd really need a whole day-long or retreat on that. Actually, I do a day-long on the aggregates. I did one earlier this year, sort of a little more complex. The six sense spheres, just the... Um, in Buddhism, the five sense doors, smelling, tasting, hearing, etc., add the mind, you get six. The awakening factors, those qualities we need to develop uh, to come to awakening. And then the Four Noble Truths, um, which really encapsulate all of the Buddha's teachings. And so you can kind of get a sense of the, the range. Some of them are particularly meditation-based. Some of them are really pointing to direct experience. And then you add the Four Noble Truths, and there's really the whole of the Buddha's teaching right there. So this is what I mean by uh, it's complex. And each one has a slightly different practice. We're asked to do slightly different things with it. Um, but they all point to the same process. Clarity of recognition context, what's happening, what's a skillful response that will decrease suffering and lead to more freedom. This is the, the thrust. And as I've said, there's a lot of overlap be, uh, between this foundation and the earlier foundations, but it's a development. So we, we train in the earlier foundations. They're a really necessary um, say foundation for this one. Um, and so it can, as you deepen in practice or, or the wisdom develops, then you can bring in this way of relating, say, to the body, because the body is included in the fourth foundation of mindfulness under the five aggregates. The first one, material form, is the body. You know, even the five hindrances, you know, we're usually relating to the body and restlessness or sleepiness or whatever. So there's a lot of overlap. Vedana. The second foundation is there as the second aggregate, feeling tone. Um, hindrances and the factors of awakening are the, the purview of the third foundation. So there's a lot of overlap, but we're asked to do a different thing here with them. As I've said, here the, the difference is going beyond mindfulness, beyond simple recognition 
to developing skillful responses. This is the difference in the fourth foundation. And really, it's inviting the skillful use of thought, of thinking. And again, if you've been on any kind of meditation practice before, many people have the idea that thinking is bad. If I was a good meditator, I would be a blank. I wouldn't think. I would sit down and I would just focus on my breath to the end of the sitting, and that would be a good meditation. I hope to disabuse you of that notion, because that sounds like someone in a coma to me, rather than, or stupefied in some way, rather than actually practicing meditation. And if you look at what the Buddha, how the Buddha talks about meditation, it's very engaged. It's very curious. There's a lot of investigation, and it's very responsive to what's happening. And it's always kind of calibrating and balancing. It's also not but it's all, at the same time, it's not constantly thinking. We're not, you know, ruminating and doing a lot of planning and everything. It's really about the present moment, but it's learning how to think in a way that's fruitful for us or beneficial for us. So it's not about not thinking. It's about training the mind and heart to relate to experience in a way that's beneficial that's skillful. So it's the wise use of thought. It's reflective thought. It's not discursive thought. Discursive thought is all the what about and if and when and what should I do and I didn't like that and da, da, da. you know that's papancha we call it. I love that word papancha. It's it's when the mind just spins off and tells it. Walter Mitty is the great example of papancha. You know just far flung imaginations. This is really very honed into the present moment. But as I said, it has this little uh, context of what I call the three times. So there's the present moment that's key. We have to be in the present moment or this whole thing, the whole ship doesn't sail. So in the present moment, we recognize what's happening. Again and again in this foundation, what the Buddha asks us to do is reflect on the previous moment. And I always wondered why the previous moment was to the left, but it always is, and the next moment is to the right. And I figured it out. Did you, do you know why that is? Books. You know, you've read, you've read to the left, and what you haven't read is to the right. Don't, isn't that, that's what I figured out it was. Anyway, the previous, <laughs> previous moment is to the left, and it's what's gone on. And so it's just, oh, what was I thinking about? What was I feeling? And it's not a big, you know, oh, it's this and this and this. It can be very immediate. You recognize, oh, I was doing a lot of planning or I was really, you know, fueling angry thoughts at my neighbor who's, you know, parked in my driveway again or whatever it is. So you recognize that. And then, in, and then you make a choice, well, how do I respond wisely to that? And I call that then the responding the future moment, even though there never really is a future moment, right? Because we never get there. It's always here. But we've changed, we've intervened in a way. We've, we've shifted our response from being lost in, you know, the Mishigas, whatever it was, to being clearly making a choice about how we're responding. So that's kind of the future. We're looking forward to the future and saying, I'm going to respond differently. I'm not going to take that train track. I'm going to take this one. And we've made a clear choice. And this can all happen very quickly. It doesn't take a lot of, what about this and that, you know. Once the wisdom develops, it's very intuitive. It's like, oh, I was spinning out on this. It's got my heart pumping. And, you know, I'm a little, I can feel the tension. I take a breath. 
and I think about something else, or I bring some metta in, or, or I um, redirect the thoughts, or I come back to the body. So this is again and again what the process is in the fourth foundation, in different ways, in different ways. And as I said earlier, you could practice any of the foundations to liberation, but the reason we don't teach the fourth individually or would be more challenging is it doesn't develop samadhi, concentration, like in the same way the other ones do. You know, it's why we start with the breath and body. Most of us are frantic, right? Or exhausted, one or the other, or both at once. You know, we come to meditation and we've been running a million miles an hour with all our lists of things to do, and we sit down and wonder why we can't concentrate, or why we're not peaceful. So we need to invite the mind and the body to come into harmony and be able to sit and be okay with the stillness. And that can take a long time to develop. So the deepening of samadhi, so helpful in meditation. And then once the mind is quietened a little, it can get interested in what's actually happening. But if you sat down and said, well, let's, you know, just start looking at this, uh, your first day of practice, it'd be overwhelming. So we need, uh, we need that foundation of concentration and, and mindfulness that then the, the experience is steady enough that we can actually pay attention in this refined kind of way. So this, what I've said now is really one of the central things I want you to remember, and, and here's another one, that there are four main themes in this foundation. And it, you know, you're not going to remember all the details, you know, well, the, the tongue, what was I, how was I meant to relate to tasting? You know, was it, you know, the fetter or, 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 or you know, was it that arising and passing? Was it impermanent? That's not important. But the four main themes are, the first one is, it's impersonal, anatta that there's nothing solid at the center of this process of mind-body. We tend to, you know, when we're not um, awake to this, when we don't understand, we have this very congealed sense of self. And for most of us, many of us, a lot of people that I speak to, uh, a negative sense of self. You know, I'm not good enough, I'm not okay, this was wrong, I didn't do that, you know. So we have this solidity there. And the Buddha says, no, look, and tell, you know, we're giving an award, the prize, whatever it is, make a number of someone who can say, here it is, I found it, there's myself, and it's solid, unchanging. doesn't exist. So he says, keep looking and see, it's just process. So related to that is the second one, process, not content, is what we're interested in. Content is, it's not arbitrary, it has a comic unfolding, you know, the kinds of thoughts you have. But we don't want to get identified with our thoughts. We want to see them clearly and understand them so we can have a more skillful relationship to them. But, so it's the, con- the, the process of thinking, not the content of the thoughts that's impro- important or any of the um, foundation. So just to see that it's impersonal, to rising and passing, the three characteristics, um, and its process, not content, that we're interested in. And then the second, the, the third and fourth are related. The possibility of abandoning what is unskillful that leads to suffering 
and developing, maintaining, cultivating what is beneficial, wholesome, and leads to happiness. And that it's possible to do that. That if we look clearly in this way, something interesting out there, it's often deer walking by. Um, if we do, if we do, if we bring clarity to that, it's possible to do that. The Buddha said this great phrase, he said, if it wasn't possible to, do, to abandon what is unskillful and cultivate what is skillful, I wouldn't ask you to do so. But it is possible. So I do ask you to do so. To abandon what is unskillful, cultivate what is skillful. And it, the language might even be stronger than ask you. He says, this is what you need to do. If you want to be happy, if you want to be free, this is what you need to do. And so it's this both an invitation but also an exhortation of the possibility of freedom. As I said, not in some future distant realm or lifetime or you know, stage of enlightenment, but here and now, in this very moment. So they're the, the four main themes that are just... Again, he breaks them down, he deconstructs experience, so we see it in all these different ways. Uh, <clears throat> I realize I'm already talking too much, but <laughs> it's hard not to keep going. And so what I really want, I think I said this already, is meditation is not passive. Meditation, I call it, is not what I call lump, lump on a log. Oh, this is happening. Oh, I'm angry. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, well. You know, and just the Buddha says, No, look, that experience arose out of your previous, you could say, unskillful responses to mind and body or to experience. When you see that clearly, you have a choice how you relate, and you can, you know, not control because we're not completely in control, but we can certainly have wiser responses to experience and shift that tendency. So it's not just being mindful. It's samasati, wise mindfulness, that has this clarity of, of training. And it's, 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 you know, what he's giving us are techniques or tools. We're our own best investigator. You know, I can sit up here, other people, you can have teachings or read things, but it's you looking at your mind. What causes you suffering? What are your, you know, as Donald's practice was, what are your 10 top tunes that you keep going back to and which ones are skillful or unskillful and how do you relate to those wisely so you increase the skillful ones, give them nourishment and decrease the unskillful ones. And this is our practice over and over again. So I'll um, move on to the first one, but any questions so far on... This, yes. Could you say again the third and the fourth? Because I've got them linked together. And I third and the fourth foundations? Theme. Oh, themes. Oh, the third and the fourth are very similar because they're kind of opposite sides. One is abandoning what is unskillful that leads to suffering. And the fourth is cultivating what is skillful that leads to freedom. And that, that theme is, is throughout. Yes. Okay, so she said, I said something, a succinct definition of my meditation, it's training the mind and heart to, I don't have a clue what I said. Anyone else remember? <laughs> it's on tape. It's on tape. Is it being taped? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
no one else remembers. See, that's what I mean. If it meant something to you, everyone else is like, shoot, I didn't care about that. To me too, I'm like, I don't remember what I said. Sorry, I can't remember what I said. Okay, so let's do a quick skim through the aggregates. I mean, no, the hind- we won't start with the aggregates. That's a bit much. The hindrances. It's on your list. Many of you are familiar with them. As I said, every, pretty much every retreat will give a talk or a instruction on working with them because this is what... They're hindrances to clear seeing. They're traditionally related to meditation practice. So as you sit to meditate, it's a common experience. I mean, I don't know how many questions I've answered on retreat or in interviews about sleepiness. You know, you close your eyes, clunk, what happens? You fall asleep or you're filled with restlessness or any of the other ones. <clears throat> as I said, um, it's very overlapping with th- this list of the hindrances, very overlapping with the third foundation. So let's look at the actual text, which is in your book or on this handout. And I'll read it, the second paragraph. If sensual desire, and it, I will sometimes change the gender, these were all written to bhikkhus to monastic, usually male monastics. Actually, one of the things, I think Analeo told me this, um, that it was traditional in the time of the Buddha that no matter who was present, you addressed your talk to the most senior person who was there. And unfortunately, in the monastic tradition, monks are always senior to nuns, so there could have been nuns present, practicing, lay men, lay women, but the teaching would be addressed to the monks. So I will sometimes change the gender, just for a little bit of late equality. If sensual desire is present in her, she knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in her, she knows there is no sensual desire present in me. Now, those of you that were here for the third foundation will recognize that formulation recognizing that something is present. And the interesting thing is not present. We don't often think about that. You know, we're always, oh, what's the problem? I call it being on pain patrol. You know, where's the problem? What's wrong with this moment? We don't usually take a moment to think, oh, I'm free of restlessness right now, or I'm not wanting anything because we're looking for where the problem is. So this is an interesting pointing, that knowing what's not present, especially if it's something difficult, when something ends is helpful. But that's the third foundation. That's almost similar language um, in the beginning of the third foundation. But then it goes on. She knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise, how arisen sensual desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. Got it? And does that remind, that formulation remind anyone of any particular teaching of the Buddha? It's a little bit of a challenging question, but... Uh, well, we'll see if anyone <laughs> responds first. It's that language of uh, knows how unarisen desire can arise, arisen sensual desire can be removed, future arising of a removed sensual desire can be prevented. Is it through uh, wise effort? Exactly. Gold star. 
the four wise efforts. And again, this is another teaching of the Buddha, of central to how we come to awakening. And its whole formulation is recognizing when difficult things or unskillful things or painful things are present, how you can uh, avoid them or abandon them if they're unskillful, cultivate or maintain them if they're skillful. It's the two things that I said of the themes of this foundation. So the difference between the third foundation and the fourth foundation, in the third foundation, we're just asked to be aware of whether something is present or not. Just this clarity of mindfulness, of knowing something is present. In the fourth foundation, we're asked to understand how did it come into being? And if it's a problematic thing like the hindrances, how a risen central desire can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed central desire can be prevented, how to avoid it arising in the future. This takes thinking. This is what I was talking about before. And this whole sequence is uh, repeated for all of the other five hindrances. We'll get to it later, but for the um, beneficial things like these seven factors of awakening, the opposite. It's like, how do I make them arise and how do I develop them? But here we're looking at how do I avoid or abandon them. So this is the key of um, working with all of the hindrances. And as someone said, I think it was you, about just naming something, so planning, you could include that in restlessness. Just the naming of it is so helpful. But it, it becomes even deeper when we start to understand why am I so obsessive about planning? Why does the mind always go to planning? And what we can often find is that underneath that planning mind is anxiety or worry or fear or some level of agitation. And it's only when we address that and point the attention to that and what's that about that there is any chance of this tendency to planning uh, being alleviated or diminished. So it's asking us to understand the context in with, within which, in this case, a hindrance is arising. And I you know, see it for myself all the time. Go into meditation and there's some story, you know, whatever our top 10 story is, the thing that's just happened, the thing that I have to take care of. And I'm sure you know this experience. You sit down and you get relaxed. I always you know, start with the breath and the body, and then boom, there it is. And you see, if you just pick that up, you don't even stop for a moment to think. You're on that train. And usually what we're doing is projecting and fantasizing. There's no reality, right, to this story, if, you know, whether it's a planning one of what I need to do or some reactivity to something that's happened. I'll say this and they'll say that and you know, then I'll show them who's right and I'll write this and I'll send an email. And we're just making up this fantasy. And what happens to the body? Agitation, um, the breath gets tighter, you feel it in your belly. You know, I see it myself. I recognize it's happening. Oh, planning, agenda, reactivity. Recognize that. And then the interesting thing for the, um, the practice is you don't just recognize that sensual desire or aversion has arisen or restlessness or whatever. You then say, and it's a hindrance. That's also a big difference because, again, you know, it's just, you know, when you name something, when you get a name for something, something happens right in the relationship. You know, it's like, 
in native traditions, I think they say that things have their name. You need to know something's true name. And when you know its true name, it shifts your relationship. The same with our inner experience. So naming, uh, it's often I've talked with yogis and students on retreat, and they'll be talking about an experience, really challenged, oh, lost and confused. And I said, you know that's doubt, right? And it's a hindrance. They go, oh. It's like the scales drop away from your eyes. Oh, it's a doubt and it's a hindrance. It's like, oh, duh, you know, because it's been so challenging, but you give it that name. It's like, oh, now I can relate to it. I thought it was something wrong with me or the teaching or something else, but it's just this process that happens to people. It's doubt and it's a hindrance or it's sleepiness and it's a hindrance. So this recognition is so important. Has anyone had that experience? I know you talked about the planning and seeing it, but so planning and this is a hindrance. Aversion and it's a hindrance. Sleepiness and it's a hindrance. Anyone practiced in that way? Even just the the naming without saying it's a hindrance. Do you want to speak to that a little? And Juliet, now we... Do you mind? No. Both of you, I mean, him too. Doubt in particular. Yes. Um, so w- when you name it, what what happens? Or actually, in a, in a previous retreat, um, I was thinking about uh, th- thanks to the teaching about doubt. Um, I learned about relaxed practice mm. and um, relaxed practice being something quite different from being relaxed. Mm. You know, um, you can have a very agitated state of mind, but when you're practicing, you can still be recognizing that as an agitated state of mind, as a phenomenon that's arising. It's a, a totally legitimate object yes. of, of meditation. Great. And um, But before I understood that uh, from the teaching of the teacher then, which was Andrea at the time, Andrea, uh-huh. you know, uh, I was thinking about what am I doing? Am I doing something right? Um, mm-hmm. Am I actually meditating? Am mm-hmm. I goofing, goofing off? You know, all that. Uh, no, that that is meditation is happening, and that's a sort of second arrow. Right. Yeah. yeah, doubt really can be like the second arrow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. Um, and how many of you had the the thought, the worry? Am I doing this right? You know, do I know what I'm doing? What What should I be doing? I mean, it's very common. And just to say, oh, that's just doubt. Instead of going. Yeah, am I doing it right? You know, I need to figure this out. No one's teaching the right way and or the, you know, what's good for me and should I go here or there? And just say, oh, it's doubt and just come back and trust because the opposite of doubt is faith or trust. And it's not blind faith. It doesn't mean you, know, you should do what you're told or whatever, but really trust yourself and your intuition. And the other thing you said that I really liked, uh, you talked about an agitated mind, um, that that's a, I forget the word you use, but a, a appropriate, a, a wonderful object for meditation. We usually think, oh, I have to get rid of this state that's unpleasant. Then I can meditate. And this is telling us, no, you just need to be aware of it. Anything can be the object of meditation. The agitated mind, the doubting mind, the restless mind, the b- restless body. We bring mindfulness to it, changes our relationship. We're not lost, we're not caught, and we're not suffering in quite the same way around it. So it's, it really does shift. And then, you know, it's like everything can be included. It doesn't, ha- you know, I don't have to 
be, you know, we have this idea what the perfect meditator sits down and just breathes and it's all light and bliss and we hear these ideas of colors and golden light and it's like not happening to me, you know, so I'm doing it wrong. It's very simple and direct, this kind of meditation. It no, doesn't have to be big bells and whistles. So naming it as, as a hindrance, uh, naming whatever the hindrance is, there's one more, sorry, Juliet, behind you. I was just uh, with this, put your hand up again. Um, naming it as, a, as whatever hindrance it is and then recognizing that it is a hindrance. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Yes. I, I have a question, actually, yes. and this is baby question, but that happens. So um, I haven't had this training, so I haven't done that, but I have had very agitated thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I then I get the, um, I guess you call it judgmental mind mm. of, oh, there I go again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can't meditate because... So I guess my question is, I, I think I know the answer, but I'm not, just want to check. So when I see that story going and I know I'm out on that boat or train, whatever, do I bring it back the breath, name it, and just try to come back to the breath? Or do I just watch it? So again, there's never a, this is what you should do because there's so many varieties of responses from very sort of gentle to very strong. Um, And it depends where you are in your practice. As I said earlier, most people need to gain a degree of samadhi or stillness before they can work skillfully with the contents of mind because we're so easily, it just heads breadth and we're lost again. So a lot of the time it is, yes, recognize, you know, planning, agitation, worry, whatever it is, and come back and feel, but not just to the breath, feel what those thoughts, how those thoughts are impacting the body. Feel what it's done to your breath. Feel any tightness in the chest or your hands or your belly. And so you get curious about that. And again, if you see, oh, this is suffering when I feed those agitated thoughts. And what is it like to actually just tend to the body that's agitated and see if I can, again, not force it, control it to be relaxed or calm, but invite through uh, this gentle awareness, can I come back? And then the mind might go away again. You need, but as I said, you need to see what's underneath. You can't just say, mind, let those thoughts go, come back to the breath. It doesn't work, you know. Maybe it'll work a little bit, but it doesn't work long term. So it's more, what's going on here? What am I feeling now? And to name, you know, not just the content of the thoughts, but the agitation, because there's, you know, there's all these levels. There's... I'm agitated with my neighbor who keeps parking in my driveway. And then there's agitation that feels like this. What does agitation feel like? What's under the agitation? And I think it's been said, many people, the Dalai Lama said, under nearly every unwholesome mind state is fear. You know, and it's so pervasive. And it mightn't be, you know, oh my God, I'm afraid, but just this little agitation of not quite okay. So just a lot of meditation is tuning into that and just trusting. Here I am. Let me just sit for a moment. I can be with this. I can open to this. So there's a lot more I could say about that, but that's short response. But let's practice with this a little. And so we're going to meditate just for about 20 minutes. And some of you, you've all been sitting for a while. If you want to just... And then we'll take a break, so please don't take a bathroom break just yet. If you want to just stand up in your spot and sit down, or if you want to get a cushion, there are plenty of cushions, or if you want to change to a chair or sit on the floor or vice versa, 
welcome to do that. And we'll just sit for 20 minutes with um, looking at the hindrances and then we'll take a break. I've been talking a lot. And just fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. It's <laughs> my cheerleader over there. Yeah. In the corner. <laughs> Yes, yes. So even as you're doing this, you can be mindful of your body. You know, as you're stretching and breathing, maybe you've been restless or tired or even bored. Um, This is what we practice with. So I invite you to come back down into your place. And find a comfortable spot. Um, The main instruction for meditation is that your back can be relatively straight and upright. If you're sitting in a chair, it's fine to use the support of the chair, but you just don't want to be slumping so that the, the curve, lower curve of your back is, is um, slumped out. I don't know, I'm not a body person, but you want to, want to have just that sense. It's really, dignity is the word I like to use in, in meditation, that the spine is relatively straight and upright, the shoulders are a little bit open and down so that the chest can be open, the breath can move easily in and out. If you're sitting on a chair, it's good if your feet can be easily, fully planted. You don't want them, you know, that you're just up on your toes and you don't want your knees, you know, coming up to your chin. You want to kind of have your thighs be somewhat level. If you're sitting, uh, lying down, just find a comfortable place. And we don't, put too much store in, you know, where you put your hands. You just want to have a sense that however you're sitting, you can stay relatively still for the 20 minutes or so of the meditation. But if you need to move, that's also fine. So just recognizing that you have a body. As you sit here, it's kind of like greeting, saying hello to this body that carries you around that keeps you alive, it is your life. But we often only pay attention to it, its external experience, eh, sorry, external appearance, and sometimes can have judgment about that. Wanting it to be different, not liking the effect that gravity is having on it, whatever. But this is the internal experience. As we close our eyes, and feel the body from inside. Can we bring a friendly awareness to this sense of the body, a curiosity? What is the body telling you right now? Is it tired or sleepy, restless? Does it feel peaceful or calm? Feeling the points of pressure where you're touching the cushion and chair, your hands touching, just different ways of contacting the felt sense of the body. And then including in that awareness of body, the breathing and all the ways the breath impacts the body. So a very open, awareness of the breath. The full breath, as you breathe in, all the ways the body expands, the cool air coming in, the nostrils, 
down the throat, the shoulders lifting, chest, belly expand. And then the out-breath, the relaxing, the releasing. But even expanding the awareness beyond that, as you breathe in, do your arms move? Or your hands? Can you feel the breath in your thighs? Or your back? A very soft, open awareness of breath. That can be uh, the foundation of your meditation, this spacious awareness of body and breath. Very inclusive, accepting, kind. Allowing the breath to be as comfortable as possible. Sometimes that might mean breathing a little more deeply so we get a little clearer with the breath or energized around the breath. Breathing so the diaphragm can relax a little or the belly relax. Breathing so we wake up a little. Again, you don't have to be passive around the breath. Sometimes it's fine just to let the breath be natural But it's not the only way to be with the breath. It can be creative or constructive in your relationship to the breath. In finding that balance, you're not meddling or controlling the breath, but just this invitation to comfort and ease. If you do find that there's tension around the breath, you are controlling the breath in a way that's uncomfortable. Main thing is not to worry about that. For the purpose of meditation, all you need is a breath. It doesn't matter if it's tight or that you're controlling it. You just need to notice that too. And is there aversion, irritation, fear, anxiety around that? And then it's very common, as soon as we start to meditate, that we think. This is what the mind does. So I've said it's not to make an enemy of thought. It's like making an enemy of an essential part of ourselves. But it's to come into this more understanding relationship to the thinking itself. So you might notice as we're paying attention to the hindrances are the thoughts of sensual desire or ill will in the mind. So greed or wanting, craving, thoughts of wanting more, wanting to get something, wanting to have something. Or they're thoughts of pushing away, of irritation, of anger or fear. So we note, notice those kinds of thoughts, name them, 
for the kind of thoughts, so aversive or angry or fearful or wanting. And then see if you can also track or note that they're a hindrance and that they're actually obscuring the present moment experience of body and breath. As well, you and so thoughts that are doubting are included in the thinking process. You worried about doing it right, understanding. Can you recognize that as doubt and that it's a hindrance? Or you might be feeling sleepy. It's kind of warm and stuffy in here. Head can be just full of cotton wool. This is soft warmth and a kind of a lure of letting everything go and just falling asleep. Can we notice that tendency, that those qualities in the mind and the body? Oh, I'm sleepy. And it's a hindrance. So what do I do in response? Open my eyes. Breathe a little more deeply. Perhaps even stand up. It's great to practice standing up, especially if you're sleepy. And the same with restlessness. Is the mind just spinning with thoughts, agitation, worry, planning? Can you recognize that as restlessness? Feel it in the body. And that it's a hindrance. So just tracking particularly for this meditation, these five hindrances, and see how the naming of them, the recognizing of them, shifts your relationship. And again, if, if you have a sense of the context in, within which a hindrance is arising, what you might do to balance that hindrance, to relax or let go, or energize. This is an active meditation, not a passive one, even as we sit in stillness and silence.
Noticing what the mind is doing. How is it relating to your experience? Is it commenting on what's happening or lost in thoughts of past or future? What's the content of those thoughts? Wanting, not wanting, restless, agitated. Can you recognize them clearly? Name them as a hindrance if they are. And just see how has that kind of thinking impacted your body and your breath, your emotional state. Recognize that too.
So we'll do some walking meditation now, um, and Andrew will begin his interviews. Um, so just to say, you probably take, you're welcome to leave now if you want to get yourself set up. Um, take, he'll be, be taking the clipboard. I don't know if anyone will have signed up, but it'll be over um, by the angel. Um, and if you're signed up for an interview, you're welcome to come and go for the interviews. You know, I, the times are going to be somewhat approximate, but you'll have to wait outside for the interview when you finish. You're welcome to come in, even if I'm talking or we're meditating. So keep that uh, flow open. So we'll do some walking meditation now. And many of you may be familiar with walking meditation. Um, many people get the idea, which is understandable because a lot of people teach it this way, that in walking you should creep along like a snail and all of your senses should be on the soles of your feet. That's a fine way of doing walking meditation. However, it's not the way that I like to teach or recommend. I'm really encouraging you to have a full body awareness, a bit like we started with the guided meditation in the sitting, just really an open awareness of the body. So tuning into the body, how does it feel? And, and often starting a period of walking meditation with some standing, just doing that, feeling your feet on the ground, the whole body's at standing, the breath in the body, very open and expansive. And then you just walk. But in walking meditation, you don't go for a walk. Sometimes you can, but in a formal walking meditation, you just walk to and fro. You find a, a level place that you can walk 20 or 30 steps, 50, whatever feels comfortable. Um, and then at the end of that number of steps, you stop, turn around, and you walk back. So you don't go anywhere. It's part of the uh, koan of walking meditation, walking without going anywhere. Because the practice is, can you pay attention? And so we want to keep it very simple. If you're out for a walk, you're like looking at this and that. We call it construction TV. What are they doing now? What are they, what are they, what, what's that going to be? You know, it's not that. It's, can I pay attention? But for this walking meditation, I want to invite you to include the hindrances, just like we did. Again, when you're walking, you don't leave your mind behind. Most of us are thinking and commenting and, and doing that whole thing while we're walking. So pay attention. What kinds of thoughts are you having? Are they aversive thoughts? You know, they shouldn't do it like that. Who left this mess? You know, they should have better irrigation, drainage control here. Whatever you're, if you're a construction person, I brought my friend out here yesterday. She said, you should prune those trees. Why haven't they put that there? It's like, Roseanne, don't tell me. I'm not in charge of the trees. So your mind might go there. You might, oh, I'd like one at the bookstore. I'd like, you know, this. So there's desire. So you can pay attention to your mind as you're walking. And then notice what happens when you pay attention. This is the fourth foundation. When you notice what happens and what choice do you make and what happens then. Is that clear? Any questions about the walking meditation? So we'll take about half an hour. I've actually rec realized this clock is about four minutes slow, so I'm going to change that. Um, and we'll come back here. I don't know what time they're working on out there. At 11.30. I have 11.12 now. Is that what people have? Yeah, this says 11.08, so I've been behind. So we'll start going by my watch. We will take half an hour. Um, so it'll be about 11.45. If someone could ring a bell, whoever is in charge of ringing big bells, uh, 11.45, around 11.35. And we'll be back in here at 11.45. Okay. And uh, if you have any questions, you're welcome to come up and speak to me individually during this time. But it's a time for silent walking meditation. <laughs> 